Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Sarah Vicendes. Sarah is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a private practice located in West Los Angeles and Calabasas. She works with adults, adolescents, and couples. She is trained in both psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral therapy, specializing in the treatment of bipolar disorder, depression, adult and pediatric anxiety disorders, and interpersonal conflict. Sarah earned her master's degree in marriage and family therapy from the University of Southern California and her bachelor's degree from NYU. She frequently conducts training sessions on the diagnosis and treatment of bipolar disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, and the intersection of psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral therapy. Today, we talk about bipolar disorder and how individuals and families navigate the diagnosis. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. I've been listening to uh, quite a few episodes. I haven't made it through all of them because there are more than 50 at this point, but uh, you're doing something very cool here. I'm really happy to be on. Well, thank you. I, I think it's about time to ha- that I've had you on because we are talking about a very important topic and one that you know quite well. You do a lot of work with bipolar disorder. And today we were talking, it would be really helpful for the listeners to hear a little bit about kind of how to navigate a bipolar disorder diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was telling you, you know, it's a particularly vulnerable time for a patient and their loved ones right after a diagnosis occurs, whether it's they're being discharged from the hospital after a mania, or it's been like their entire life, they've had these ups and downs and they're just now getting a diagnosis. But would it be helpful if I gave a little bit of an overview of what bipolar disorder typically looks like? Um, Because it's often misunderstood. And there's a stigma attached to it. So people don't talk about it as much. Depression, we kind of understand and talk about more. Bipolar disorder is marked by pretty significant shifts in mood. And so it's a spectrum of disorders. So some people, if you're thinking about, I had a whiteboard here, right? And and people listening won't even be able to see what I'm doing with my hands. But I'm hitting kind of a middle ground where it would be no mood at all, right? And then you have kind of what we'd call your normal mood shifts. You know, it's my wedding day and I'm feeling really happy or I just lost my job and I'm feeling really sad. Sometimes people will come in and they'll talk about being bipolar or, you know, this person is so bipolar just because they're kind of moody. And you do have like a lower level of cyclothymia is what we call it, where it's like moody to a point where it kind of is starting to cause you distress and impact your functioning. And then you've got bipolar two, which is a step above that, which where you see significant depressions. Um, so that's, you know, two weeks or more of losing interest in things, sad mood, maybe crying a lot, maybe even having trouble getting out of bed, really depressed mood. And then you'll see that person maybe cycle into a higher mood that's a little higher than maybe they feel like their normal self. So the initial question I'll ask people is, have you ever had a period of time when you felt so high, hyper, or excited that you weren't your normal self? Or I'll say, or so irritable that you weren't your normal self. And people that have had these up moods will know exactly what I'm talking about. And they're like, yeah, there are these periods of time when I'm really different from my normal self. Someone without bipolar disorder would say, yeah, I'm really happy sometimes. 
And so you dig around and you find more, but bipolar one is the most significant of these. And that's when someone's up mood gets so up that maybe they get hospitalized and need more intervention to be able to uh, medication to come down from that up. Um, some people have difficulty with the law because they're so irritable. So that's when you get into really significant impairment. So these are not normal moods. If there isn't normal, there really isn't, but they're not your typical. They are so low and so high that it starts to get in the way of you being able to live your life. Right. And I, one thing I wanted to say is that one question I often ask people, because so I think of kind of hypomanias, which are kind of mild manias, but still mania, manias, mm-hmm. in a way, and then full-blown medias that really are kind of clearly might require hospitalization. But sometimes it's hard to tell sometimes, right? If mm-hmm. you know, normal mood, or if it's maybe a little bit above that. And what I ask people kind of similar to what you ask is, well, have there been times that people really kind of say what's gotten into you, right? And, you know, you're acting kind of different. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's kind of an outside input, which is sometimes really helpful too. Yeah, absolutely. And that gets into treatment too, is where sometimes when we lose ourselves, when we lose the ability to see ourselves, we need people around us to reflect back the reality And that's where a question like, do people ever say, maybe you're talking really quickly or, whoa, like, (laughs) you know, what do you want today? Like, it seems like you're moving really fast. The ability to recognize that, to hear that without getting defensive and incorporate that into your ability to monitor your moods becomes really important because sometimes if we're in it, we don't see it. It's like a person who's had a little too much to drink and someone says, did you stop? You can either hear that or get defensive about it, they might be able to see something you're not seeing in that moment. So, yeah. Okay. So, so we're really talking about today though, people Mm -hmm. who have had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and it's an Mm -hmm. accurate diagnosis, wherever kind of they are on that spectrum of the different types of bipolar disorder. Yes. Yes. And as I mentioned, it's a particularly vulnerable time. I always feel really honored and it's a, a big responsibility that I feel when I'm working with someone where this is new, because it's a lot to handle. Essentially I'm telling someone or someone else has told them and they're coming to me that they have a, what could be, and probably most likely will be a lifelong chronic illness. And at this point it's probably impacted their life in a significant way. And so, you know, that's a moment where I think biologically they're particularly vulnerable and fragile because of the fact they just had this diagnosis or they just had this episode, but psychologically the acceptance of, or rejection of that label is usually a part of where I start. And then that kind of ends up weaving in and out of, of our work together as people come to terms with that, maybe have more episodes and and that helps them accept it. What I like to tell people when they're very concerned with the label part of it and giving it a name. I mean, we can call it whatever you want to call it. This is just a name we've given to this cluster of symptoms that you've experienced. But if I diagnose you on a Wednesday and I'm not saying anything about, I'm not changing who you are from Monday, two days earlier, me giving this a name didn't take you and make you a whole separate thing. What it did was give context to your suffering. So now for me, I feel really optimistic because I can say you've had, you've been suffering from this. This is something that's been in you. Now I know more about it. Now we can have a roadmap and we can be able to navigate this together. So I'll, I'll sometimes hold a lot of the hope and optimism 
while also helping them process the grief of you have an illness and, and this is the name of it, but also to say, I don't know what your future is going to hold, but I know how to treat this. And I know a lot of people that know how to treat this. And, and I think I can help you. Yeah. So where do you start on the roadmap then? What, what's the starting point? Mm-hmm. After, I mean, it's not after that because it's not really linear, but for me, I think psychoeducation becomes really important too. Maybe you have someone that their parent had it and they know a little bit about it. But for a lot of people, like, you know, I get a lot of college students from either UCLA, USC, and who have had a recent diagnosis. And so a lot of times their parents will fly in these young people and they'll show up and they'll say, what do we do with this right now? And be in a real state of disarray and maybe reading things, but aren't necessarily reading the right things. So the first thing I always do, and I had the honor of working with Dr. David Miklowitz up at the UCLA Child and Adolescent Mood Disorder Clinic. He has a book, The Bipolar Disorder Survival Guide. There have been multiple editions. It's really the gold standard. I will give them, I have multiple copies in my office, but I'll give them a copy or suggest that they get it because I think that's really a great place to start because what we know is if you educate people and get into what is this, what is this disorder? Some of them will want to know more of like the biological underpinnings of it. This is in my family. Is this genetically, uh, are you more likely to have it if your parents do? The answer to that is yes, that it does tend to, to run in families. It can help people contextualize it, but then to give them actual tools for this is what you can expect. And these are the things that might be helpful to you. When people say, and I'm sure you hear this too, the inevitable, what's my life going to look like? Like, am I going to have another one of these episodes? Typically, what I'll say to them is, you know, I don't know. If I'm talking to someone who's had, and I don't end at that, right? I don't know, which I think there's a value in me being honest. But what I do know is that if you've had your entire life, if I'm meeting you at 50, and we can look back and we can kind of track this, that gives me more information, right? That this is more cyclical. If you've had one episode in college and sometimes we can't really, you know, figure out, was it drug induced or was it because you weren't sleeping at all? And because, you know, like we don't really know. And there's been one episode I'll say to people, I don't know, but 90% of people that have one, if it's a true mania, 90% of people that have one are going to go on to have another one at some point in their life. But you could be one of the 10%. And we don't know that. So what we do with that is a lot of sitting in the unknown and I'm going to help you with that. And we're going to monitor you so that if you do have another one, hopefully we can catch it early and keep it from being maybe as damaging as the other was. That's actually very well put because I I was thinking about these cases that I see kind of a first episode Mm -hmm. of mania. I mean, some people have depressions, longer kind of more cyclical depressions, and then they have the Mm -hmm. episode that looks like a mania, or maybe this is the first time they've ever had any mood shifts and they recover and they're like, I don't know what that was, but I'm better. Right. Mm -hmm. And then to kind of have clinicians say, well, I think it's bipolar disorder and it's a lifetime disease. People don't really want to hear that. I mean, if you're a young kind of, it usually comes out late teens, early Mm twenties and to have to say, Oh, that's going to, you know, I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. Of course not. I mean, as a young adult, Mm -hmm. like 
you kind of don't want to think about your future like that in a way. And so this idea of, you know, I like the way you put it, knowing what the statistics are, if you have Mm -hmm. had a dream. And yeah, you can be hopeful. You could be someone who maybe you're maybe lucky to be in that 10%, but what can you do in your life, especially in the shorter period ahead to Mm -hmm. kind of help maximize optimum mental well-being and health that might help those episodes from maybe happening, right? So kind of, can you talk a lot about self-care and things that you can do to kind of actually put yourself maybe at a little bit of a less of a risk for those episodes too? Absolutely. Look, if I thought there was value in getting buy-in to this is your life, maybe I push for it. It doesn't really help us. So if I find myself kind of in a debate with someone, I'm fine just saying, look, I don't know, but in this moment, let's just try to make you like exactly what you said, the, the healthiest, happiest version of yourself. And part of that is medication. And that's where I call someone like you to come in and say, look, for most people, medication is a really important part of this process. But I love working with people like you who are also good at sitting in the unknown and aren't going to say like, you are this thing, take your meds and be quiet, (laughs) right? Like this is your life now where you're going to say, okay, this is where you're at right now. These are the medications I think could be helpful. Here are the side effects. Something Dr. Gitlin said in your your podcast with him about the treatment of mood disorders that I loved was, you know, that we should be measuring outcome, not just on symptom reduction. Let's see if we can keep these people as level as possible and as symptom-free as possible, but rather functional, um, their function in their life. How how much are, are they reaching their goals? What's their career like? Are they relationally in a place that they want to be? Because with, with addiction, you can be sober from the substance, right? You can't be sober from mood. What are we going to do? Like I laughed with someone the other day. She said, what do I do? Do I take this medication? Because it makes me feel kind of numb. And additionally, wanted to kind of live a lifestyle where she wasn't getting enough sleep and not necessarily take the best care of herself. And I said, you know, you, I could put you in a little hermetically sealed baggie and we could just make our goal that you never have another episode ever again. You go to bed at 8 p.m. every single night. You quit that job that sometimes has crazy hours that you happen to love. And you just make this your ultimate goal. But this woman wants to live a life that inherently has a little bit of risk to it. And I, I will sit with her in that. And I'm okay with that understanding that much like addiction, relapse is a part of recovery. And... I'm not going to tell you that you should live at a five out of 10 if zero is depressed and 10 is manic, right? Nobody lives at a five, but if you want to try to live at like a six or a seven, and we know that when you hit a seven, if we're not careful, it goes eight, nine, 10, then I'm going to help you. And, you know, with someone like you, you know, Josephine for medication, we're going to try to help you live where you want to live, understanding the risk factors and not being blind to them, but also not being scoldy or judgmental about, about someone if they have another episode. Right. And actually that reminds me of cases when, when parents come in with their young adult children Mm -hmm. and the parents are like, all right, what do we need to do? Right. And so they should Mm -hmm. not drink and they're in college Mm -hmm. and they, their whole peer group drinks and that's what they do. They Mm -hmm. shouldn't drink. They should not smoke marijuana. They should not do all these things. And, you know, of course, yes, if they are on board with it, Yes, that makes a lot of sense. But mm-hmm. if 
let's be realistic too. You kind of have to meet the person where they're at and be like, okay, well, this is the risk of doing this Mm -hmm. and taking that risk. Is that worth it to you? And maybe it is right. Maybe you want to live kind of this life similar to what you mean, the life that you were living before, but maybe tweaking it a little bit with a little bit of a modification, right? Maybe being Mm -hmm. a little bit more conservative about alcohol use, maybe really thinking about that marijuana use of like, you know, should you use it quite as often? And is it really, really helpful? Or is it actually kind of harmful to you? And so approaching it with a curiosity instead of like a rigidity of this is what you should not be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I like when you say, you know, meet them where they're at. I participate in ongoing consultation and supervision, you know, and I have throughout my career. And one of the things that one of my supervisors and colleagues always says to me is, let's meet them where they're at. Because I'll have these like hopes and dreams for people. And I think that's really important, right? And I'll share that with my patients and say, these are the things I think you can have in your life. And these are the things that I find myself kind of wanting for you based on what you're telling me you want. But I'm also seeing that you're not really ready for that. And am I wrong on that? And I, I also think it has a lot to do with space of life. You know, if I'm talking to someone who is 40 years old, And they have had maybe multiple episodes. They never knew what it was. This is where you get a lot of relief. I get a little more pushback on the diagnosis from like a 25-year-old, understandably. From like a 40 or a 50-year-old who has just been moody and labeled, I'm putting that in quotes for anyone who's listening to me, who's been kind of labeled as just, well, they're, you know, a little out of control or a little moody. And now, and maybe they've really lost or harmed relationships during their manias. Maybe they've have difficulty with their career. They're at a phase a lot of times where they'll say to me, I'm kind of done with the risky behavior. I would like to know what I can do to, you know, I'm fine going to bed at the same time every night. I'm fine. Keep talking about that because sleep is so important for well-being with bipolar disorder that I'm fine crafting a, a calmer life because now I want to have sustained relationships. Now I want to really invest in this career. And sometimes there have been near misses, you know, I'm talking about manias, but depressions, this population is at a frighteningly high risk for suicide. And so people oftentimes will say, I've survived this and now I want to thrive. I want to live. I'm tired of just surviving and barely surviving. And so sometimes I look at people and I think maybe they just need a little more time to live their life. I'm going to do my best with them leading the charge, but I'm going to try to scaffold around them so that they can maybe not have the experience of having to learn the hard way that they have a mood disorder and that they need to take care of themselves. But at some point, I'm hopeful that if it continued and if it progressed, that they would come to the realization that, okay, now now I want to change my life. Because you can't force someone to do that, nor, nor is that my job, right? Right. You bring up a really good point too about, I mean, it made me think about these manias when you're younger, there's, it's exciting, right? If mm-hmm. it doesn't cause harm, which, you know, people do put themselves in risky situations, but if they come out without any kind of notable harm done, it's like, well, that yeah. was fun. That was exciting. Right. But mm-hmm. as life goes on, like you said, and you realize you're like, oh, that's actually been really damaging to my relationships, or it's really, yeah. you know, I've made these decisions where I'm like, 
I put myself in a lot of risk and I'm not willing to take that risk anymore. Right. And so it is kind of this evolution of being like, you know, I don't really want that for myself. Yes. It's exciting, but it's coming Mm -hmm. point getting to the point where it's actually like more uncomfortable than exciting really. Yeah. And hearing you talk, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm talking to someone whose full experience is that was just exciting. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like, all right. I'm not actually all that worried about that, right? That that's something that, but that to me, if it's a real mania or hypomania, that's not the full story. It's subjectively the experience of like, okay, between Monday and Friday, I felt really great and I felt really creative and I felt amazing. Kind of like maybe like if you were on a substance, right? Um, But if we're going to pan out and look at the reality of it, when you come down from that, and that's typically when, when we see people in our offices is on the flip side of the depression. If someone's telling me how amazing that was, it's my job to try to pan out to a part of that was the ramp up. Maybe there's, there's usually some level of I embarrassed myself or I put myself in danger. I said things I shouldn't have said. I engaged in sexual activity that risked my relationship or I spent so much money that now I'm in debt. And that's why when the flip side of the depression comes in, you have this high risk of suicide because a big part of what I'm doing, if we're talking about like the moment right after diagnosis is usually a lot of damage control. So it's exciting for that moment, but if we pan out and look at what it actually means for you, it's usually pretty destructive. And that's what I think some people don't understand is that it's, you know, this good time that you might see this person might be the most fun at the party for other people, but then they're going home and their life is out of control and they're go, go, go until they crash. And so I really empathize with people who in a different state of mind made decisions that were separate from who they are and what they value. And now they're sitting in my office, just wrecked with remorse and guilt and embarrassment. And it is them, but it wasn't them. And then helping like in couples therapy and families and stuff, helping them understand it was them, but also not in their right mind. I keep using substance as an example, but it's very similar where, yes, we all have to take responsibility for our actions. And I can't just say, well, you know, I was drunk or, well, I was manic. So you can't be mad at me. Of course we take accountability, but I see people rake themselves over the coals for this behavior. And I also want them to see the other side of it of this, this isn't truly your true self. You know, this was you under the influence of this thing. And we know, you know, I can show you all the research that shows you this is a biological thing that happened in your brain. This is not a weakness. This is not a moral failing. I have to introduce a lot of empathy up front and try to get them to develop that for themselves so that they can get through the inevitable crash after that exciting time. Right. Yeah. We had these kind of points too. I want to make sure we hit all your points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love, I, I think this conversation. I could just be, I could talk about this for five hours, but your listeners are going to get bored of me after, <laughs> you know, it's, it's being succinct about this stuff is hard because it's just, I'm so passionate about it. But No. Well, what, what next, like in terms of thinking about kind of the roadmap, what, what are things that we haven't touched on? Relapse prevention. Relapse is a part of recovery. That's a phrase that's used in addiction work a lot. I use it a lot when working with bipolar disorder that I hope you don't have another episode, but 
again, if you've already had them, let's work under the assumption that you're going to. And if it's your first one, let's just monitor and see. But I think a lot of clinicians, because I talk to a lot of clinicians that A, don't feel like they've gotten enough training in this, but I hear a lot of nervousness around people defining themselves by whether or not their clients relapse and the clients defining their success and how, how well they're doing by whether or not they have another episode. And I really try to start the narrative, shift the narrative to, again, you can't be sober from mood. <laughs> I don't want to take away your mood. Like that's no life worth living. So let's work under the assumption that maybe you don't go to a 10 mania or to a zero suicidal depression, but you're probably going to have some variation in your mood and that's okay. We're going to try to shave off the edges a little bit to make it so that it's not as destructive for you. But when I set up at the beginning, this expectation, kind of like, I don't have the expectation that you're going to have level mood forever. You shouldn't have that for yourself. Maybe working with parents, I have to be overly, you know, communicative about that because a parent does want to put their kid in a little baggie and say like, no more episodes. And I truly, you know, as a parent, I understand that, but it's really, it's a long life with a lot of opportunity for big moods. And so within that, I tend to, I mean, there are specifics, like there's an app moodily and a couple other apps I'll give you that you can link for people that help people track their moods. I used to give out paper and actually I did until about a year ago. And one of my clients said, why are you doing this on paper, Sarah? There's an app for this. And I thought, oh man, this is when I started to really feel old. Of course, there's like multiple apps for this. So you don't have to do it on paper anymore, but tracking your mood to try to get a sense and then bringing it into session and saying, it's very hard on a Friday when I say, how was your week to take me through? Oh, it was up and down. And so out of a 10 scale, I have people just track their moods. I really analyze with people, the chain analysis of where does your mania start? Like when does it tip over the edge from good mood into mania? Because it could start with a night of bad sleep or it could start with a rejection at work or it could start with, there's usually a trigger for people. And this is where everyone's, everyone's mania looks a little bit different or hypomania and even depressions, but there are certain trigger points. And when we understand those, then we can say, oh, this didn't just start when you felt on top of the world. This actually started when you went to this party and did this drug, or this actually started when you didn't get good sleep or when you decided not to take your medication because you just didn't feel like it because you were feeling great. So the, the more detailed we can get about that, both towards mania and towards depression, then we have a chance to catch it before it becomes too extreme what else do we do? I mean, working with a psychiatrist is incredibly important. And so I think people, you know, you can do this without medication. I think people owe it to themselves to just try and take a consult. One of the things that, again, I really love about working with you is you will meet with people and they'll come out of it without a prescription. And it, you'll say, you know, this is the thing I would do for you, or this is something I think could be helpful. Or even you said, I'm not sure if medication would be helpful. I think you should try TMS or some other thing. And I love that because people think the moment they consult with a psychiatrist, they're on medication until they're 80. Yeah. And I'm constantly saying like, just have a conversation, you know, with her and see what, what she says. And this isn't like a forever thing. 
But so I also want to make a comment about that. Yeah. So interesting. I was just thinking about it of all the, I mean, of course, I think every patient I see who I put on medication should have a therapist because there's so mm-hmm. much more than just taking a pill for these mm-hmm. mood issues or anxiety issues. But I think there's this specific thing about bipolar disorder that is so important. I mean, mm-hmm. I could say that about anxiety and all these things, but the thing about bipolar disorder is to learn to accept a d- diagnosis, the psychoeducation. Mm-hmm. And then you're right in terms of thinking about this relapse prevention, it's so important. And mm-hmm. so just to medicate in the absence of all this extra support that's out there, it just seems, of course, there are restrictions why people can't do therapy and, and why people mm-hmm. can't do medications, but it just seems like the perfect duo, right? Of a medication that kind of helps reestablish a more balanced brain chemistry and then kind of the therapist role, which like, this is why we're talking today, because I really want mm-hmm. to know how you work with people in terms of like, how do you really talk about the real life stuff, right? That comes with it. Yeah. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you talk about like family support, we could do a whole other podcast on like helping families be supportive without being overly supportive. That is a really interesting dynamic of, okay, you want your husband to tell you when he thinks you're getting a little bit elevated, but when he says that you say, God, am I not allowed to have a good mood? Why am I always bipolar? And it's really tricky for loved ones and caretakers to know exactly how to manage that. And so I help with that and I help with communication around that. And actually David Miklowitz's group at UCLA does a lot of work in family therapy and around that as well, because that's going to give people the best chance. If you have a partner or even a friend group, I've worked with clients whose college roommates were very much on board. And I knew that I could call them and have them help them get to the hospital if they needed to. So if it's not a family member, it's just people who can be educated and understand. And mostly if the patient is willing to accept that help and feedback that that becomes really important. Yeah. Yeah. What are the other, I mean, we, I think we kind of hit the main topics, right? I think we did. I think when you're, it's interesting. One of the things that I specialize in also is exposure therapy for OCD And I've noticed, and this is something I give a lot of thought to, and maybe I'll try to do something with in the future, but there are specific centers that are, research is pretty clear, exposure therapy is the most effective treatment for OCD typically. And so it's ERP for OCD, and it's what we talk about, and and you get diagnosed as this is the thing you need. That doesn't really exist for bipolar disorder that I've come across. There aren't training facilities where it's specifically doing this particular thing for mood disorders. And it's a big part of why I have a kind of eclectic integrative background. I do psychodynamic kind of just general talk therapy and I explore people's histories and things. And then I also have a cognitive behavioral. I have that experience and existential therapy. And I, and I work with couples and families specifically because I think you, what you want as a patient from a therapist, if you have bipolar disorder, honestly, probably a lot of things, but specifically with bipolar disorder, I really think you want someone who isn't wedded to one particular type of therapy because, and if you, if you are, then you want to make sure that the other things maybe you're getting from other therapists. But I find myself doing a lot of 
exploration into clients past and trying to understand how they got here and maybe why their you know moods look the way they do. I also do a lot of couples therapy and family integration around that for all the reasons we talked about. I end up doing a lot of cognitive behavioral work with those worksheets I used to give people that now they can just do electronically of like chart this thing for me. I've got no discomfort giving homework. And I think there are, I could have referenced Dr. Goodwin's podcast a lot, but another thing I liked was that, that he was talking about kind of don't marry yourself to one type of treatment being the thing, because there's a lot of different types of therapy and it's a complicated disorder. And so having more tools to be able to manage all these moving parts is really valuable. Right. No, I agree. And no one has ever referenced another podcast on my podcast. So I love it. <laughs> oh, I could reference. I really enjoy. I really enjoyed a lot of them, but, um, yeah. but maybe he's just a hero of mine. So maybe. I <laughs> well, yeah. want to name drop a little bit. That's terrible. I think the other important thing that I was thinking when you were saying that is there just are not that many specialists who focus on bipolar disorder. No. So it is really important that your clinician has experience and really understands bipolar disorder because I've seen cases too, that sometimes the interventions can be harmful if, if the clinician actually doesn't really understand bipolar disorder and the course and, yeah. and these things. And so yeah. even in a place like Los Angeles, there just are not a lot of specialists. There are, there are some, but it's just, I think it's hard to find someone. Well, and that really ties into kind of what I'm, I'm going to preempt you because I've listened to so many of your podcasts that you asked, you have final words. So I'm just going to give you my yes, final words. Final word. Because it, it ties into what I wanted to say, which is I, I believe very strongly in therapist accountability. And so I try not to judge what other clinicians are doing. So I don't approach it from like a, this type of therapy is not right, but more of if you're a patient and you've been in therapy for a period of time and you're not getting anywhere or you're not feeling heard or you're getting worse, you should absolutely, if you feel like you can talk about it with a therapist, reset and say, okay, I'm, I'm a little confused here about what our goals are. I'm not getting where I want to get to. I'm still suffering. And if they're not willing to have that conversation or provide another referral, then it's totally okay to fire your therapist and move on. I tell people that at the beginning of our work, I say, you know, I am, I'm hoping I can be really helpful to you. If I'm not, please tell me because maybe it's something we can work on, or maybe you need somebody else. And that's totally okay. So I start with that because we're in these power positions and people don't feel like they can challenge what it is that we're doing, but I've seen wonderful therapists and I've seen therapists that didn't help me at all. And we're kind of wastes of time. And so I, you know, I, I really think people should know that it's okay to advocate for yourself and to expect to get better. Like that's an okay expectation. You know, it can get worse before it gets better, but if you pan out and there's no getting better, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Totally agree. And I think that the key is discuss with your therapist, right? So absolutely. There's a lot of complexity that goes into the therapeutic process, but yes, you're right. I think in general, it's always good to think about kind of what have I achieved, right? And what do I yeah. need? And I need to have an open conversation about my needs and if they're being met. So I agree. Which is just a great skill set to have anyway, yes, right? Talking sure. about your needs, making yeah. sure they're met. And most therapists should be willing to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. 
with people, right? Okay, well, I'm going to make sure that on the episode description, there'll be information about you and your practice, as well as the resources, any resources that you want to share with the listener. Um, We'll make sure that those are available. But I so enjoyed having you on. I think this was a really smart interview and um, because I think you're smart and I think you work really well with clients. And I've worked with you for so many years, but I've never been able to sit down with you in this way and really mm-hmm. hear about the process, which I think I, I've learned so much from you today. So I even I've discussed cases with you. We've shared so many cases, but mm-hmm. just sit down like this and talk about it. I think it's been really helpful. Oh, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I value you as a friend and a colleague and I, that means a lot. And, um, I think it's really great what you're, what you're doing. Everyone in our industry talks about starting a podcast and you actually did it and it's really great. And you're talking to amazing people. So I just think it's, it's, you know, good for you. I'm glad to include you finally with all of this, this topic, we have not focused on too much on my podcast. And I think it's something that people are looking for information about. So I think it's a great resource. Thank you for being here and talk soon. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.